I wanted to begin with a few remarks concerning some of the things we've been talking about over the last several weeks in regards to assumptions that we make about the Gospels, especially the assumption of Mark and priority, that Mark was written first, the assumption that there is a, or was, a document of the saying source of Jesus that was then used by Matthew and Luke along with Mark in the writing of their Gospels. All of these assumptions are built upon studies and analysis of the last century and a half regarding the nature, the structure, the, the, the literary formation of these Gospels. It's been the development of scholars, especially the last 50 years, in the precisional uh, identification of, of characteristics that indicate that Mark is primary and that there was indeed a written source that Matthew and Luke used that we no longer have and that is not contained in Mark in the writing of their Gospels. Now, these assumptions are built upon studies, upon analyses, upon reasoned arguments, but they are not proven, okay? They are assumed to be true by most scholars in the world today, but not all scholarship is in agreement with it. The vast majority are, and the vast majority still beyond that are in agreement that Mark is primary, that Mark was written first. There are some scholars, however, who disagree with the concept of the hypothetical Q document, the saying source of Jesus. And some of them are very uh, top-notch, high-flight scholars in the field of New Testament studies. Some are some up-and-comers who have uh, come on to the study in the, in the last uh, 20 years and have come out with some excellent arguments against for instance, the hypothetical Q document. I've been doing a lot of reading in the literature as of late, and one of the scholars that I've been reading recently is a fellow by the name of Mark Goodacre. Mark Goodacre is professor of New Testament at the Department of Theology at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Uh, he is a very well-known scholar. He's written several books, not just these two, but these two are the ones that apply most to what I'm talking about. This book is The Synoptic Problem, A Way Through the Maze, which is a fairly, uh, thankfully, short, with nice marginal space, well-written book dealing with the questions that we've been talking about. Um, he also goes into many examples, um, and he presents the argument in favor of Q quite well, and then presents an argument against Q against the analysis that Matthew and Luke used Mark and another written source. And he believes he has given a good argument that that isn't the case, that Matthew and Luke uh, did not use a written source independent of Mark. They both used Mark, and then Luke used Mark and Matthew. Mark Goodacre does an excellent job of presenting the arguments pro and con. However, especially in this book where he delves really deeply into it, entitled The Case Against Q, he builds an argument that shows the problems in the idea of another document. Um, the problems that have arisen in the multiple arguments in favor of Q and comes down in opposition to the whole idea. Um, 
he uses Occam's razor as his principal argument. And Occam's razor is a principle in philosophy that says that the most proper, most likely answer to any issue is always the simplest one. Now, unfortunately, that's a logical fallacy. But it, it's, it is an elegant argument. And in this case, there are reasons to listen to the argument and follow the argument, but I think he overstates his case far beyond what the evidence shows. But the good thing about Mark Goodacre and other scholars like him is that they're good writers. <laughs> so many New Testament scholars today are terrible writers. They know wonderful things, but, and they do wonderful research, but they can't write it down for normal people to be able to read. For normal people to be able to read. And so um, the good thing about Mark is that he's an excellent author. He writes accessible to the non-specialized layperson. Someone who does not have a doctorate or a master's degree or even a bachelor's degree in New Testament can pick up this book, especially the synoptic problem of Way Through the Maze, and read it and understand what he's talking about. This one's a little tougher. This one assumes you have some academic background. This one really presents it clearly. And if you ever have an interest in picking up a book on the synoptic problem, this one does a very good job of laying out the argument both in favor of hypothetical Q and then the very best argument I've ever seen against it. But I bring these in here not necessarily to recommend them, although I would recommend this one, the, the synoptic problem. I bring them in here principally to point out that scholarship, while the majority will argue a certain way, not every single scholar is in agreement. And in fact, many, there are many scholars who would disagree on the, the minutia details, who would agree on the overarching framework. And so whichever book you read, you'll get a slightly different opinion and approach. I myself have pulled from all over the place. My thinking is sort of an amalgam of multiple different sources, uh, plus my own analysis. Um, uh, every scholar is that way. Every, every person is, who, who looks at these issues is going to really be that way. So when you hear somebody say, well, Mark was primary, Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels based on Mark and on Q, uh, the saying source, know that while that is... The result of a century of research on the subject by really good scholarship and the majority do accept that basic framework of the argument. Not every scholar agrees on the details. Not every scholar even agrees on the whole framework. And it isn't really proven. Now, the closest they've gotten is to prove that Mark is primary and that Matthew and Luke used Mark. There are very few, I mean extremely few scholars today, even the most conservative New Testament scholars that I have read, accept that Mark is primary um, and that Matthew and Luke used Mark. The question becomes then, where did Matthew and Luke get their material that's not in Mark, that is clearly literary material and not oral material, where they're quoting something. Now, is it believed that Q is a single source? One of the theories, among many, is that there were several cues. Oh, okay. 
I was wondering that. There were so. several <laughs> editions of Q. Some, of some, some had some things in it, some had other things in it. Some were an amalgam of multiple versions of earlier editions. Um, one theory that solves a few problems but generates others is that Matthew had one edition of Q, Luke had a different edition of Q. They were very similar and overlapped tremendously, but some had some things and some had others. Uh, that's an unnecessary complication in most of the arguments. And I have not really seen any, except for an occasional interpretation and question as to why Luke or Matthew used a certain saying out of Q a certain way. I, I just can't see a real solid argument being made for there being multiple Qs. What's the argument that Mark had no access to Q or did he just decide? Because most of Q, in fact like 95% or thereabouts of Q, is made up of the material that's in Matthew and Luke but not in Mark. That's kind of uh, that's how we know it exists. The, the reason logic. for the reason for hypothesizing the existence of a written saying source, and it being a written and a saying source of Jesus, is because Matthew and Luke appear to be quoting something when they're not quoting Mark. They appear to be quoting something that's written that's not in Mark, and so the theory is there has to be something else written that we no longer have that Matthew and Luke are quoting. Hence, they've given it the title Q. And why, why did they propose that... You know, I'm going back to Ockham's Razor. Again, right. Because Mark's the shortest, so that, that's right? Well, the simplest, maybe? The, the short, Mark is the shortest. Mark is the right. simplest. It's Mark has the most simplest, most primitive grammar. Matthew and Luke tend to polish it oh, yeah. when they quote from it. Uh, and, 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 and expand upon it when they quote from him, if they, if they correct him. Uh, the arguments for Mark and Priority are really solid. The arguments for Q are solid, but not as solid. And, and the only way we know of Q is in a comparison and contrasting between Matthew and Luke relative to what's not in Mark, but what's in the two of them parallel. So is the thought that Mark had access to Q? Or no? no. The thought is, is that Mark... Why wouldn't he? That's my. Oh, he could theoretically have had Q. Absolutely. He wrote the argument. The question is why. Your question is why doesn't why do we say that Mark didn't have Q? Yeah, right. It's not in his gospel. Right. And the assumption is is that if he had it, he would have included the material, the teaching material. There are two arguments against that. Um, he could theoretically have had Q, but not wanted to include it because his purpose was to write down the teachings of Peter about the life of Jesus, and. Peter didn't dwell on the sayings of Jesus. He dwelled on the life and teachings, the life and miracles and death and resurrection of Jesus. And not so much on Jesus said this, Jesus said this, Jesus said this. Who was Matthew and Luke writing to? Were they writing to two different audiences? Very different. Matthew was writing to a Jewish Christian audience in the Antioch, Damascus area. And Luke was writing to a Gentile Christian audience in Greece and Asia Minor. So I would think that would affect what they're going to write as well as the message that they're going to receive. Just like any other part of the yes. Bible, it's written, you know, correct to, to the audience. And so you've got to remember that we've got two different audiences here. So we could very easily have two different sources. So it's going to come out. 
different. Well, the problem is, is that while, the, while they're writing to two different audiences and they are writing from two different perspectives with somewhat different objectives in their writing, mm -hmm. they are using, and you can determine this pretty clearly through literary analysis of what they write, they are using written sources. And we know they both use Mark, mm -hmm. and we're pretty sure they both use something else that was written. Who was Mark writing to? Mark is writing to the church in Rome. He was writing, therefore, a mostly Gentile Christian audience, though there were some Jews there, as there were some Jews in, in, in Greece and in, in Turkey. He was writing to a mostly Gentile Christian audience, but, but really the occasion for his writing is the more important point here. He was, he was writing soon after the death of Peter to get down in writing what Peter had taught about the life of Jesus okay. based on the preaching of Peter. And when you examine Mark, and I'll present this next time probably, you can identify how Mark wrote his gospel thematically and so we'll look at that. His, he has a chronology in it that looks like a chronology of the life of Jesus, but in fact it's a thematic structure. Less chronological other than the basic framework of Jesus baptized, teaches, teaches, Jesus gets in trouble, Jesus gets arrested, Jesus dies, Jesus gets raised. The basic general order in all four Gospels is, <laughs> is maintained, but uh, it... Other than that, the actual order and sequence of the healings and all seems to follow a thematic structure that can be, that can be divined by just simply reading it. Uh, this is very similar to the, some of the questions that were asked first time. Uh, why does it really matter? Why does it matter? It matters because if we are reading this material and we're reading them parallel as we're doing, it becomes interesting to see why Matthew writes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as opposed to Luke's, Blessed are the poor, for theirs are the kingdom in heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That comes straight out of Q, by the way, or if you assume it existed. It's not in Mark, but it is a written piece of material that pre-existed Matthew and Luke, which both are quoting. Why did Matthew add in, in spirit? In spirit yeah. Which caused, which raised, and, and there's, that's just one example among hundreds. But how is that going to answer that question? Which question? Why did he write in spirit? You, you have to consider their sources and how they use those sources to therefore understand why. So if you assume they had source cue that that came out of. If you assume that both authors had a common source cue out of which it comes, their reverence for that source will impact how they use that source. If they believe that source goes back to close to the time of Jesus, they might be desirous to quote it more directly with less manipulation. If, on the other hand, it was written by someone either by the very person who was quoting from it or by a, a, a contemporary of that person or by someone who was trained or educated by that person, he may feel a little more free to adjust it. So, you know, if Matthew, the biblical Matthew, wrote Q, wrote it down, wrote down the sayings of Jesus, as Papias tells us, and then 
it gets translated into Greek, and then either Matthew or probably one of his students later on is using Mark and the thing that his teacher wrote, he might be more willing to expound upon it a little bit in an interpretation than someone who doesn't know the author but knows he was a disciple, has reverence for that disciple, and is willing to quote it more literally and less manipulation of it. And that tends to be what Luke does. <clears throat> Not always. Luke sometimes is very willing to interpret. But he is often a little more abrupt, a little more direct, more like what many scholars think the original saying source of Jesus was. One of the reasons for persisting in, uh, in assuming or proposing that a saying source existed is that it would then fit with what Papias tells us about what Matthew originally wrote, that it was a, a collection of the sayings of the master, the logia, the words of Jesus, which is very different from a euagelion or a gospel about Jesus. And so when they say that we don't have a copy of Q, we don't have a copy of Q other than what we've edited out of or taken from Matthew and Luke and put together. But, um, but we do know that there was something written at one point early on that was a collection of the sayings of Jesus. And we actually have in Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas, something that looks kind of like a collection of the sayings of Jesus, just heavily edited and expanded upon by Gnostics. But it is in Q because it contains those sayings in very different order. I'm thinking that this type of... Um investigation and, and talk at the level you're at still helps explain and I think I know what I'm thinking about when Lisa's asking that question is there's so many discrepancies so many differences they're synoptic up to a point but then they're not yep yeah, well, well thus far we haven't really seen how they're synoptic <laughs> exactly we're because we've been the dealing with the, the, the pre-marking material well, Jesus was born <laughs> yes but Matthew and Luke <laughs> so dramatically different in what yeah. and how they talk about yeah. it. But he was that, born. But oh. he was born, and you know that. Well, Mark doesn't address his birth. He's just simply there. Yeah. But just because Mark doesn't write about it doesn't mean that he thinks Jesus came down out of heaven without any birth. Right. I mean, you, some, some scholars go kind of ridiculous and say, if Mark doesn't write about it, Mark doesn't believe it. Nonsense. I'm, I'm sure that Mark knew that there were teachings of Jesus beyond what he wrote down. Absolutely. But it is a good question as to whether or not if he had Q in front of him, would he not have included some of it? Well, if we understand all these differences through the investigation, mm -hmm. that they're different, then maybe some of the literalists in the Bible that are, who quote the Bible and have a lot of problems. Literally, with well, why? And you, you pointed out to them, well, that can't be. Well, that was inspired, so it's true. Well, how can all three of these things be true? <laughs> you know? uh, excuse me, you're defying the law of physics and God. Here. But you know what? I'm thinking this can help the common man. The more well, the study you does talk about these studies, and the more you can commonly in the look end, at what becomes important is what we learn make a about Jesus, about how the early church understood and wanted to communicate Jesus and about how we receive that, what Jesus and what the early church said about it. Now, 
Most of the study, the, the synoptic studies done by Goodacre and other scholars, most of that study is done to try to uncover the quote-unquote historical Jesus, believing that the historical Jesus is something that has been covered up by all of this stuff that's been glommed onto him in the Gospels. And the scholars who do this, generally speaking, go through a process of judgment based on whether or not Jesus said something. Did he say it this way? Did he say something kind of like this? Did he say something exactly like this? And they use these sources to try to weigh their arguments one way or the other. And their objective is to try to determine what the historical Jesus was or was not. Frankly, considering how many different types of historical Jesuses I've seen written down in books, and there are as many historical Jesuses as there are books about him, or scholars doing the work, I frankly have very little interest in making arguments one way or the other. I'm more interested in seeing what the biblical Jesus says. How Matthew, Mark, and Luke understand Jesus, how each one understands Jesus independently, how each one understands Jesus in a sense when they come together between the three of them, what we can then pull from all three understandings. One of the, one of the and Goodacre talks about this in, 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 um, in this one here. In, in the synoptic problem, the way through the maze. He says in one point, he says what's, what's important is determining something that has not been in play in the synoptic studies until very recently, the last eight or nine years. It is realizing that while each three of these books are separate and independent, each three of them have also been adopted by the church to communicate our understanding of Jesus. And as a result, they, they have an impact that, is, that, it, that merges, that comes together. We get a holistic understanding of who Jesus is by reading all three Gospels. You can do that via harmonization or by reading the, the three independently, seeing how they compare and contrast, and seeing how, as I said, why, ask the very question, why did Mark, why did Matthew add in spirit and Luke leave it out did Luke leave it out or did he cut it out for brevity's sake I mean that's the alternative argument the argument could be that Jesus actually did say blessed are the poor in spirit and Luke <laughs> cursed are the cell phones <laughs> virgin mobile <laughs> Ooh, the virgin mobile I don't see why, and I'm not saying it's like a debate, I'm just, I don't see how saying that it's from Q or not, how that helps you solve that problem. Without the document, you're never really going to know that. I mean, to, to say whether Luke cut that out or whether Matthew added it. Or? Jesus said it both. Yeah. Jesus said times. both right. at different times, right. so, so, so exactly. which is another argument. Right. So to you know spend a ton of time debating the validity of the existence of a Q or not, I guess I'm, what strikes me as a very worthwhile endeavor is to come up with why would Matthew say something that might be on the surface contradictory. Uh, to something that might have been said by one of the other gospel mm -hmm. writers, for instance, referring to God as, or Jesus as the Son of Man, 
to a reader casually, they could say, well, he's obviously not the son of God because he's referring to the son of man. Or there's, and that goes <laughs> to studying why he would be writing that way and the audience, for instance, of who's writing. The audience, the author, the context in which they're writing. All of those factors are involved in making those kinds of determinations. Seeing how Matthew changes that from where Mark says son of man, Matthew changes that and Luke changes that and they change it different ways. Why? That's part of the triple tradition, which will take up a big chunk of our time as we're reading, and we're reading the, those parts where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are both you know, together. How do Matthew and Luke, how are they quoting Mark? What do we learn about Jesus from their approach? Do we learn anything from their approach? No, I, don't, I just don't see how you can not be at least curious about the process. <laughs> oh, they're... That develop this, you know, the understanding that, that we'll never really... Probably have a Unless somebody actually discovers Q. Now, you know, that's possible. Uh, I was at a seminar, a textual critical seminar, about eight years ago, and Charles Worth, who's one of the most, most important scholars in textual criticism right now, was speaking, and the question was raised, what would you do if you were to find something like Q? And he said, well, after jumping for joy <laughs> and making sure I had a good photographic copy of the whole thing before it fell apart, you know, I would sit down and very carefully read it to see what it tells me about Jesus. Now that, that right there is the point, I think, that um, I find the most powerful. What, is it, what does it tell me about Jesus? Those who have, who have essentially going through the process of recreating Q from Matthew and Luke, many of them have done it specifically to see what that document then tells them, and therefore us, about Jesus. And does it tell us anything different than we would learn in Matthew and Luke themselves? And the argument tends to be yes. It gives us a slightly different perspective. It gives us a slightly more Jewish perspective. It gives us a perspective on Jesus that's more interested in what he said than in what he did. It gives us a perspective that isn't weighted heavily on his healings or on his death and resurrection, which governs the other Gospels. It deals more with what he had to say, what he taught. The, there, the criticism of that, and it's a valid criticism that comes up in synoptic studies all the time, is can you really understand what he said divorced from what he did? No. Aren't you creating another gospel when you do that? Are, are you trying to recover another gospel right. that existed? Refine. Yeah, which is which is there are. I mean, I'm giving you the devil's advocate right. there. But, but it's kind of the it's just one other way of looking at. It. So we have three. We have well, if you include John, you've got four. Right. And they've thrown in Thomas 
Uh, Not the current Thomas, but the earliest recovered edition of Thomas to give you a fifth approach. So you've got all these different approaches trying to see the historical Jesus. And again, I find that objective, while interesting, and every time a new book comes out, I usually end up (laughs) reading it, I find it in the end a very, I'm kind of in lines with several scholars who have become so weary with the practice because it always produces such inconsistent results. Well, it wouldn't be any different than if Rich was to write something about me and my coworker was to write something about me and one of my siblings were to write something about me. There's three different, you know, they know three different complete people. Oh, yeah. And isn't that basically what we're doing here? Isn't it? Yes. Isn't it better to have those three different views than just one? Exactly. Because you get to know a more complete person. But if you and I written, think that's what we're if you had written something or one of your closest disciples was very scholarly, like Peter, let's say, had written something, and we had that, and that's what that was my. And I don't want to really screw this up. Plus, exactly. No. Or what you've learned from. But what other if Peter sources? wrote more? That's that's my whole. That's my fear. What if there's more and we discover more writings on Peter? I don't want to screw this. Well, then you got Mark really talk about Occam's razor. Well, I decided to cut those. Five, you know, chapters or out. Maybe Mark just didn't know. Or didn't? Things. Well, he better have even Peter right. Well, no? he his Peter may not several several <laughs> things about Mark's gospel, which we'll talk about next oh, week. Yeah, I, I think may answer the couple of those questions. There's something about Mark that's very fascinating. If it's built on the preaching of Peter, which I actually accept, if it's built on the preachings of Peter. And it's organized by the author, by Mark, thematically. He may very well have not included everything that Peter taught. He had a certain objective in writing. And he wrote that way for a specific reason. To get it down. Possibly to get it down before it got forgotten. Think about it. The teachings of Jesus are actually really easy to remember. The parables are actually very simple to remember. And if they're simple for us to remember, for people who are trained to learn via parabolic uh, teaching processes, it would be even easier for them to remember. They hear it once and they've got it. But the Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this type events is different from parables. And so that kind of literature would demand or call for a codification via writing. Just get it down. Get it down. As, and to present a certain picture of Jesus. And the thematic organization, the question one scholar who works on Mark has said, the thematic organization of Mark is such that it raises the question, did that actually come from Peter himself? Did Peter did Peter did Peter <laughs> preach about the life of Jesus in a thematic order that only tangentially appeared to be chronological? I think that's a really solid argument because when I organize my sermons, I don't always organize them chronologically or even canonically in the way in the way in which the scriptures are laid out, but thematically. Most preachers do organize their sermons thematically. And so if it's based on the preachings of, T- of Peter over a period of time, it may very well be that Peter preached various thematic messages about the life of Jesus. 
And then Mark takes those sermons and puts them into order, creating thereby a chronology. But I think that that thematic structure actually dictated in part why he did some of what he did the way he did it. And may have been a part of the reason why, if he knew Q, why he didn't use it. It can also be argued, not as strongly, that Q may very well have been the, uh, circulating only in the eastern half of the empire, not on the western half. Hence, it may not have been actually physically available even if the author knew about it for him to, to quote. That's possible. Oh. Well, they weren't working from the same copy of Q. Oh, no. They each might have gone exactly like their copy went. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? It's possible that the cue that, that Luke had lacked that phrase and the cue that Matthew had actually had in spirit. Mm -hmm. In the ancient world, you've got to remember, they didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have a printing press. Everything was done by hand. However, we do know that the tenacity of religious literature is such that, I mean, the degree of, the degree of big changes, and that's a big change, uh, in copies is fairly minimal. It, it, it takes a long time for those types of additions to get added. And we're not talking about a long time. Maybe it was at the edge of the paper. And the yeah, exactly what I was thinking. It broke Matt off. was the tax collector, right? The disciple was, yes. He was educated. A collaborator with the Roman occupation forces. Not exactly the, 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 the disciple that you want to have writing one of your gospels. He's also older. Older than Jesus by probably 10, 15 years, if not older than that. And he's usually depicted as being gray-haired as a disciple, not later. And you know, tradition says that he died in the late 50s or early 60s as a very old man, but would have had disciples who, uh, who he taught and would have been probably did, probably would have been fairly active in that region where the gospel eventually did come from, which is why I said that it may have been a disciple of Matthew who wrote that gospel based upon something that Matthew wrote and lots of things that Matthew taught, plus Mark's gospel, which has its apostolic source in Peter. All so that speculation. The name of taking Matthew, then, you, you tend to lean towards somebody writing it who was of... Um, my argument for Matthew, the tradition of Matthew, of the gospel being written by Matthew. Oh, where did Papias get the claim? Well, he, what he says about it doesn't equate with what we've got. He says it's the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus written in Aramaic. That's not what we got in Matthew. In canonical Matthew, we've got a gospel that contains the words of Jesus, but it's a full gospel, not just the sayings, not just the logiae. And it wasn't written in Aramaic, it was written in Greek. So there's a disconnect between what Papias says Matthew wrote and what we've got in a canonical gospel. The argument that I make is that behind all of that, behind even Papias, there is the statement that it was known that Matthew wrote something. He wrote a collection of sayings about the life of Jesus. Papias knows that. He assumes it's the canonical gospel. He's mistaken in that assumption, but it's a natural assumption to make. Um, 
If he is the author of at least the initial, if not the entirety, of Q and Aramaic before it got translated into Greek, it would have been written in the communities first in Palestine, and then later it would have circulated heavily in the diaspora after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, when all of the Jews and Jewish Christians were expelled, principally north, to Antioch and Damascus, where the church, the Jewish Christian church, ended up reestablishing itself. And all of those Jewish Christians, therefore, who would have been taught by Matthew and by some of the other uh, disciples who didn't go far from home, would, would have ended up going there too. And if Matthew had written Q, then it would make sense that it would be popular in the community then where this gospel got written down. And if they knew that Peter had been behind Mark's writing of his gospel, well, that's a good source then. And so they said, well, let's take this that Matthew wrote and this that Peter wrote and put them together and create a gospel. And its authority rests upon both of them and we'll give it the name Matthew, possibly. But it never actually has the name added to it, not until much later. In fact, after Papias tells us. Otherwise, why would Papias be telling us? Uh, and the earliest copies do not have Matthew at the top. What do we have? Nothing. Just starts. Just says the gospel. Copies, are you talking about Aramaic or in Greek? No, there are no Aramaic copies of Matthew. Okay, what's what's this deal on the notes that the Aramaic notes that Mark took? That uh, you mean that that Matthew took? Matthew, right? That would be Q. Sayings of. But you don't. Sayings. We don't have any. <laughs> We don't have any solid indication. When you of that. when you when you go of through Matthew and Luke and and analyze the sayings of Jesus to recreate Q, yeah. what you get, and this has been done repeatedly by different scholars, what you get is a collection of sayings that are very Hebraic in nature, but they're written in Greek. If you then look at how, for instance, the 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 Syriac Orthodox Church uses the Gospels and you do it in Syriac which is written in a with an alphabetic system one way but orally sounds like Aramaic it's related to Aramaic Syriac and Aramaic are almost the same language someone who spoke Syriac would understand someone speaking Aramaic kind of like someone from northern Scotland talking you're from the United States. I don't know. You heard them talk. I don't know. It can be pretty tough. But my point is, is that you know it's the same language. You miss some vocabulary and some grammar, but you'd understand the gist. That's the similarity. And we have Syri the Syriac New Testament from very early in the transmission of the New Testament. And so that gives us an idea of what it might have sounded like in Aramaic. And when you compare the reconstruction of Q using that as your base, you can see kind of how it might have sounded in Aramaic before it got translated into Greek. And you can see the echoes of that Aramaic structure in the Greek. Just as we heard echoes of the Hebraic cultural and, and religious expectations in Luke in the readings that we had from the first chapter, remember? The stuff that sounded Jewish in this oh, yeah. Gentile writing depended upon many Jewish cultural expectations, which told you something about the source that Luke was using. 
when he wrote that. It was a Jewish source, possibly a Jewish girl, or at this time a very old Maybe Jewish lady. <laughs> uh, but uh, at, any, at any rate, uh, you can do that and come up with a good guess at what Q would have looked like in Aramaic. And it's been done by several different scholars independently, and they come up with something very similar each time they do it. And that gives you an idea of what Matthew might have actually written if he's the author of Q. And then that would become then a very important document that was circulating in that area. It got translated into Greek, especially as it moved out of that area and into Gentile territories. Much more Gentile territory. I mean, Antioch is a Gentile territory, but into territories that are Greek, as in Greece and Western Asia Minor, which is part of the Greco world, the, the Adriatic Basin. And, and in that area, you would need to have it in Greek. Heck, you need it in Greek in Antioch. And in fact, one of the arguments that I heard for pressing Q and Mark together along with the oral traditions to create Matthew is the need to create a single gospel that that region could then use to evangelize non-Christians, as well as support the faith of the existing Christian church. And from the earliest days in the 100s, we know that Matthew was the favorite gospel of Antioch and, and that whole region, whereas Luke was the favorite gospel of Greece and Asia Minor, where it was written. And Mark was the favorite gospel of Rome, where it was written. And you ask, why do we have four gospels in the New Testament? John was the favorite gospel of, of, of two places. One on the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, Asia Minor, and the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea, Alexandria, Egypt. Why, were those, why do we have four gospels in our New Testament? Because of politics. <laughs> the church in Rome demanded Mark. The church... In Athens and Ephesus demanded Luke. The church in Ephesus and Alexandria demanded John. The church in Antioch demanded Matthew. Well, good political decision. Let's put them all together and have four Gospels. That's essentially how it happened. We know that. We, we got letters from anti-Nicene church fathers who tell us that's essentially how it happened. Then you get Augustine who comes along and says there are four wins. Oh, big book. <laughs> that's a nice <laughs> theological argument. But what's the real one? It's called politics. And church politics being what they are, you get some interesting so things. So somebody obviously going back to inspiration, somebody inspired this political event to happen. Well, but it Put also it makes together. sense. I think it's fascinating, and part of that inspiration, that three of those Gospels are closely related, and yet dispersed across from the western half of the Mediterranean basin to the far eastern end of it. Mark, Luke, Matthew. That's fascinating. One extremely Greek in the middle, one extremely Jewish in the Far East, one that is Jewish but Greek in the West. I, I find that fascinating. And they're all related because, of course, Matthew and Luke used Mark. In this age of internet and world info, information being immediately available, we forget what it would have taken for that, something like that to happen. And in the length of time we're talking about... We're talking between the writing of Mark and the writing of Luke. We're talking a window of 20 years at the, ex at the extreme. More likely 5 to 10. 
before the first one would have been been written based on Mark. That's not a, that's a that's a narrow window of opportunity. And in part driven by certain political events like the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. I think it's important to, to realize that you can use the word politics for it, but there was there was consensus around in these various locations about this. I mean, these things didn't just get forced on anybody. No. They were very popular, you know, and, and well accepted and, and believed in, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yet, the church in Rome, quite frankly, didn't like Matthew's gospel. And uh, one of the early heresies, one of the early heretical movements was, was led by a fellow by the name of Marcion. We have Marcion to thank for our New Testaments. Marcion proposed the first New Testament. He proposed 10 of the letters of Paul and a edited, heavily edited version of Luke's Gospel. The very first, in, in, in 120 AD, the very first New Testament was proposed by a heretic. He came from Asia Minor, the son of a bishop in northern Asia Minor. He was teaching in the church in Rome, and he proposed Paul's letters, which had been collected in the 90s, and an edited edition of Luke that leaves out all the Jewish stuff. That was his, God, that was his New Testament. And he made one really big mistake besides being an anti-Semite. And that was, he proposed, they actually said this in Rome. You made the mistake of proposing somebody, some other church's gospel instead of ours. Why didn't you use Mark? Which is our gospel, our preferred gospel. So each region loved and supported their own gospel. Even the quote-unquote heretics in the region would often support that gospel. The Gnostics used John. The Gnostics in, in northern Africa took John because it's the most spiritual of the Gospels, and they did things to it to make it more Gnostic-y. <laughs> you, could, you could continue in those arguments, but you're right. There was, there, it was politics, but politics is driven by your, your needs and what you want. And each region of the church demanded that its favored gospel be included if we were going to produce a single volume. And this occurred before the institutionalizing of Christianity is the religion of the empire. Because by the time of the Muratorian canon, towards the end of the second century, all four gospels are accepted as the gospels in the New Testament to be part of the Christian canon long before the end of the persecution of the church long before Constantine was even a glimmer in his great-granddaddy's eye. All right? That's an interesting note, too. We really went a far field. But we are in Luke. Before you get going, I Yes. One interesting thing, you emphasized that Mark was the favorite of Rome. Interestingly enough, when we read Luke, mm -hmm. which emphasizes Mary, I mean, I think of Rome and the Roman Catholic, I think of the emphasis of Mary. That seems counterintuitive. You're thinking of modern Rome and, yeah, and medieval yeah, Rome. Back, Go yeah. back to New Testament Rome. It's a different thing altogether. New Testament Rome was not Marian at that mm -hmm. point. Luke is very Marian, which 
Also, but if you were to do a quiz based upon what we've done the last couple of weeks, I would have said, well, Luke, based upon content, sure. given my frame of reference, it's just not intuitive. Which is fascinating. Yeah. But it's, it's a fact of church history. Yeah. And, it's a, and it's a hilarious fact, too. Um, you would think it would be the other way, but it's not. What's really interesting to see is which, which Gospels were favored in the West beyond Italy. And while Mark was really loved, principally due to the influence of the church in Rome, evangelizing Spain, evangelizing France, eventually following up the Celtic church and re-evangelizing England, really the favorite gospel in much of the West was Luke. Okay, we have finished. Can I, can I yes, ask you a question? please. Just so I can read my notes. Later. Sure. What is the group of Christians after Christ's death and before the Council of Nicaea? The, the, the fathers, the apostolic fathers. Oh. The apost- uh, they're, they're usually called the, the post-apostolic fathers or the anti-Nicene. Anti, not anti, anti-Nicene with an E. Anti-Nicene as in the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. It's the church fathers who wrote between the close of the New Testament and the Council at Nicaea in the 300s. And they are very important for our source of information on the early church, on the church during the period of oppression from the Roman government. Because once you get to the Nicene Council and and the post-Nicene Fathers, you have the church as it existed as the Roman state church which is a very different kettle of fish than the anti or pre-Council of Nicaea fathers, most of whom were wrote during the period of oppression from the Roman Empire. And so you get a very different character of Christianity when you go back to people like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon. These, These church bishops, essentially, most of them were bishops, not all, but many these folk were pastoring churches that were underground, both metaphorically and, re- and literally underground, because if above ground, they could be arrested and tried and executed for refusing to worship the emperor, which was a big deal. But they're called the anti-Nicene fathers in most historical studies. Just think, the guys who wrote, and unfortunately it's mostly guys, if they, I think it's all guys, who wrote prior to the Council of Nicaea, prior to the Edict of Milan, which which brought a toleration to Christianity on the part of the Roman Empire, which was promulgated by Constantine. So you know, you're, you're, that gives you a, a framework, a couple of hundred year period of time. The people who wrote in the 100s and 200s AD. Other questions? Even, even allowing for the fact that, that we want to respect the writings from this period because they were so close to the time of Jesus, why do you think it is that so many scholars say this is it and there can't be any more? And then, The idea is that I, I've seen a lot of people and, and heard a lot of people um, say that there's no need for us to try to explore more contemporary pers- understandings that these guys got it right the first time and we're just intended to receive the tradition. Okay. Fabulous question. Most people 
let me rephrase it slightly. Yeah, please. Most people do not comprehend that the balance, not all, but the balance most, of Christian theology with regards to the nature of Jesus, the nature of the church, questions of salvation, and eternal life, all come from post-biblical church speculation, prayer, meditation, and council decisions that occurred during the first two to three hundred years of the church. Let's take, for example, and it's the best example I can think of and the easiest to get your brain around, it's the nature of Jesus. During the first 300 years of the church, now, in, in the Bible, you can find solid grounds for saying that Jesus was divine and human at the same time. But there is no codification in such a way that clearly states that. You can deduce it from Scripture. But there's no place that actually says that Jesus was consubstantially human and divine, i.e. God and man at the same time, and 100% on both sides. That, that doctrine and all of the arguments over variations on that doctrine occurred during the first 300 years of the church. And that formation period of the church, its faith, its to use the O word, it's orthodoxy, it's Catholicism, undergirds most of the, the church's faith today, its theology today, can be traced right back to that period of time. I think that the argument is based on the concept that, that the argument that this, the result of their debate, the result of their Speculation, the result of their study, the result of their meditation and prayer on the issue, the result of the teachings that supposedly, theoretically, and they proclaim, go back to the apostles themselves. The results are important for that very reason. They reflect the apostolic witness of the church. That's the claim that's made. And... At this point in time, if you're a Christian, if you are a Christian today, your Christian ancestors, theologically speaking, were back then. And all that you have comes from right there. Doesn't matter if you're Protestant, doesn't matter if you're Eastern Orthodox, Western Orthodox, that's i.e. Roman Catholic, doesn't matter what denomination, flavor of Christian you are. If you are a Christian today, your identity began to be molded in that period of time. Your faith identity began to be molded there. It's prior to the split of the church in the 11th century. It's prior to the earlier splits that most people don't know about in the Orthodox region of the church, uh, north and south, i.e. Uh, African Orthodoxy. Looking back to that earlier period, the assumption is, well, since we all trace our identities back to there, what they said impacts us directly. And then you also have to remember it's looking at this concept of apostolic succession where the faith is best proclaimed by those who were chosen by the apostles 
and trained by the apostles, and then those whom they trained, and then those whom they trained, and then those whom they trained until today. So it becomes an issue of authority. And how do you maintain the line of authority? I mean, I can give you a personal, for instance, every United Methodist elder who exists today can trace their apostolic succession straight back to one of those early church fathers, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon. <laughs> and before him, all straight back, all the way back to Paul. I got a chart in my office on my wall that does it. And uh, that authority is the issue. The authority of the early church due to their proximity to the apostles in terms of time and teaching is given therefore weight. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. No, uh, it's helping. People today who wish to maintain the traditional, I'll use the C word, the traditional Catholic understanding of the Christian faith, of which we are a part, by the way. People today who wish to do that, do that based upon the concept of apostolic authority. And the authority, therefore, that undergirds the church today is the same authority that undergirded the church then, which made those proclamations. I talked about this earlier on when I talked about the organic nature of the word, that the word was an organic entity. It, it, it wasn't closed off at the end of the first century, and that the early church viewed itself as being in direct continuity with Jesus and with the apostles, and that organic continuity, the continuity of the word, the continuity of the community, is part of that whole undergirding apostolic conception, which gets institutionalized in the doctrine of apostolic succession, where a bishop lays hands on and ordains the next bishop, who lays hands on and ordains the next bishop, and so on and so on and so on, down to today. And that idea, therefore, generates an, a continuity also of authority. And when you come right down to it, the answer to your question is the big A word. Authority and the P word, power. The ability to determine the end result. There were fights in the church over the doctrine of Christology. The Christology is the doctrine of the nature of Jesus. Is Jesus fully human and fully divine? One of the alternatives is known as Arianism, which is the doctrine that Jesus was a human being whom God adopted, or possibly an angel whom God elevates to be God, depending on your the group of Arians you're talking about and whether or not they're Jehovah's Witnesses today. Um, uh, but Arian doctrine fought it out with what became Orthodox doctrine, uh, and we call current Christology on the nature of Jesus Orthodoxy because it won. And as I often say, being an historian, history is the story of a person who won? It's his or her story, history. It's the story of the people who won. And what's fascinating is to read the materials of those who didn't win. And some of that stuff still exists. I don't necessarily agree or disagree. I just think that that it, it comes down to an issue of authority. So, and in answer to your question, it's because of authority. Well, I asked the question because, you know, in, as, you, as United Methodists, when we do things like this, study our Bibles and, and 
you know, try to make sense of what they mean. One of the tools that we use for that is the tradition of the church. Right. This, this is something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which so often gets misinterpreted as an equal four-sided square, when in reality it's more like a three-legged stool, where scripture is paramount, and the means to interpret it are the tradition of the church, our own reason, and our experience as Christians. That's what we bring to bear when we read our scripture and try to make sense of what it means. And so this question of tradition has weighed on me for a long time because I keep running up against it over and over again when I, when I talk to people. And so I keep asking that question because I wonder, like we're doing here in, in our Bible study, when we read our scripture and we talk about it, we're making the same, we're making interpretations as well on the basis of our own reason and, and tradition. And then the question is how much weight do these get? How much weight does the tradition get? In, in comparison to... Here's a visual illustration. I use, when I talk about the quadrilateral, I prefer the concept of a unicycle with training wheels. Ah. Scripture is the big wheel. Right. Tradition and experience are the two training wheels on each side. Mm. And the rider's balance is reason. The quadrilateral is uh, scripture, tradition, experience, reason. That's the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Well, if scripture's primary, then that's the big wheel. And then the training wheels on each side are tradition and experience. And tradition is actually the compendium of the experience of the church that has gone before us. Experience is our own experience active today. And then reason is the balance of the rider keeping the unicycle in motion. Hence, tradition and experience help to guide, help to keep you upright. It's the wheel, the scripture, that is the principal support. And then the rider who's pedaling generates the balance process in reason. That's the illustration that I like to use. And in that regard, our studies of the big wheel, we are guided by the past Scholars, Who wants to reinvent the wheel? You don't. It's too hard to do that. So we depend upon the past thinkers of the church. And you have that illustrated in many of your Bibles. You've got notes in your Bibles. That reference reflects much of the tradition. I'll be very honest with you. I am an example of that tradition. That's one of the ways in which I study scripture is in conjunction with how it's been interpreted throughout history. Whether I agree with it or not, I'm aware of it. Experience, what we experience today is extremely important in terms of interpreting scripture, helping to guide it. And then balancing and providing motion, because if you're not moving, you're going to fall over. Trust me. So providing motion and balancing is important for the person who's doing the study. So that's how I understand the quadrilateral. Tradition is one very important part, so is personal existing current experience today. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would, would that you. be Thank why you. they call the Bible a living document? Because it is, you know, it's not dead, it's not cut in stone, it's, it's an ongoing... I believe that the scriptures are organic. 
living. Uh, I, don't, I, I, I believe that we'll never add any new books to the Bible. I would make a good, a strong argument in favor of returning at least some of the books of the Apocrypha mm. to constant use, but that's another argument. Uh, um, I don't think we'll add any more books to the Bible, even if we were to discover an undisputed letter of Paul, for instance. Well, first of all, proving that would be a nightmare. But just assume you could do it. I, I don't think it'd get added. I just, I just don't see it happening. So it's closed in that sense, but its content and what it says to us is never static. It's alive. That's what I mean. That's what I'm all a living document it's everybody's interpretation mm -hmm. keeps a little bit different so it's a, you, you read it I think one thing she reads it I think another thing somebody 10 years from now thinks another thing it's living it's never done with I have preached all the way through the lectionary at least three or almost seven times I'm on my seventh time mm -hmm. I go back and look at the previous times I've gone through the three year cycle of the lectionary and preached and I'll think to myself, man, I was stupid. Why did I remember that, man? I think completely differently today. My interpretations change over time. What I think about it changes. I've done these Bible studies and come back and do the same book again several years later and discover my thinking. I learn a whole lot. My thinking changes. And it's because of where I am, where we are. It's that experience leg. And the reason balance that'll adjust interpretations. But it's more than that. Because I happen to believe that the same Holy Spirit that inspires the authors of the scriptures in whatever degree we understand inspiration, we talked about that last time, uh, the same Holy Spirit who inspires the authors of scripture inspires us today in our experience in our reason, and inspire the church during the development of its tradition, even when it's wrong. The Holy Spirit is still active in inspiring and, and, and breathing God's presence into it. Um, we talk about Jesus as God incarnate in human flesh, the word of God in human flesh. Scripture can be understood as the word of God written down in the words of humans by human beings. I also talk about Holy Communion as the word of God and bread and wine. Different instruments, tools, means for reaching and attaining and receiving and receiving into ourselves God's grace. So I believe the scripture is absolutely alive, absolutely organic at multiple levels. Can, can live and be applied to us today. I am guided by the tradition of the church, very much a Catholic Christian in that sense. Do I disagree with some of the historic Christian interpretations? You better believe it. I, I'm a heretic on some things. Probably so. We used to wear a badge, said the heretic. I have a t-shirt that says heretic. Good <laughs> <laughs> company. However, based upon... The whole compendium, that's only a tiny sliver. For the most part, I tend to be fairly conventional. We have reached a point where we need to finish up the section of Luke called the infancy section. 
We've completed the birth narratives from Matthew and Luke. We've looked at, at how Matthew and Luke each addresses the issue. Luke, far more expansive. And we're going to see a final chunk of that today. Matthew, far more condensed. Luke, from Mary's perspective, quite literally. Matthew, from Joseph's perspective, quite literally. Luke, far more accessible in many ways to just the average reader. Matthew, addressing issues that were of importance to the, to the Jewish Christian community directly. Um, Luke and Matthew, so frequently we take elements from the Matthian story and inject them into the Lucan story. Luke still reserves, is still the principal basis for the nativity story that we all know. We take pieces from Matthew and stick it in, like the wise guys. And how many were there? Scripture doesn't say. There were three gifts. There were three gifts. There might have been 30 wise men. We don't know. And we take the story from Matthew and we insert it into Luke. And we try to harmonize in most of our iconography. We try to harmonize the two based on the Lucan account. And the reason for that is multifold. The Lucan account is more expansive. It's easier to read and follow as a story. <laughs> Frankly, Gentiles are more comfortable with it. Uh, it's it's more of a full account, okay. So that's part of that reason. It concludes with an event that occurred when Jesus was twelve years old, and it's found in Luke chapter two, beginning at verse forty-one. Now, every year, his parents. Anybody have a different word there? Mine says parents. Parents. Parents? Mm -hmm. King James? Yes, Parents? Well, it should because it's Ganois, but, but it's still problematic, and it's, it reflects how terminology and theology interact here. It didn't seem to give the church enough trouble that they changed it at this point. Now, like they did with Joseph, from the father to the Joseph to Joseph, which was a fascinating discovery. Now, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And, and, and by the way, really, really good Jews would do that, especially if they had finances. Every Jew would do it at least once in their life, kind of like going to Mecca for, for Muslims. It would be something that if you were poor, you might do only once or twice or three times in your life. Every year would show us that based on the Lucan account, the assumption is, is that they're not poor. And assuming that he's a carpenter, that Joseph is a carpenter based on tradition and scripture, assuming that Joseph is a carpenter, he's actually a tradesman who actually was fairly well employed in that sense. Not wealthy, but certainly financially capable. Whether or not he would be capable of going to Jerusalem every year from Galilee for Passover is a good question. But that's what Luke says. So that's what we'll. That's what so, we'll, so this is about Easter time for us. Yes, just prior to actually. 
There is one historical thing, and I know this yep. only because um, I went to the University of South Florida for a while, and there's a there's a very well-known um, archaeologist there by the name of Charlton, and he was conducting archaeological digs in Sepphoris, which is about 60 miles from Nazareth. And at the time, about the time that Jesus would have been an infant, um, the Roman emperor was building this whole big trade town there called Sepphoris. And so there was lots of work in the region. And so it's possible historically that there may have been a context for them having the means to do this on, on a more regular basis. That's just something that's concurrent. Another thing to keep in mind is yeah. that Israel was currently under Roman occupation. Yes which is part of what you're talking about, right. which means that there would have been need for artisans and craftsmen capable of doing things like carpentry work continually as subcontractors to the Roman military. So it's very possible that, that Joseph might very well have been uh, what we would call a subcontractor to the Roman military. That was not, and Nazareth's not far from one of the capitalist cities, so it's very possible that that could be the case, and Sepphoris is a good example of it, very good example of it. Now, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up as usual, usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. That's interesting. Here it says, asking them questions, but then it says his understanding and his answers is what amazed them. Hmm. It reflects a very rabbinic way of teaching where you sit in a group, you ask questions, you give answers, you share questions, and you share answers. It's not unlike how we teach here. It's very similar in many ways. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you, been, why have you treated us like this? Look. Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. This follows in the same chapter, uh, along with so much of this incredible experience in terms of the birth of Jesus and all of that that they saw. I mean, did they forget it in 12 years? It says Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. Well, should therefore, should she not be expecting something unusual to start happening about the time he's 12 years old when he comes into his Jewish manhood? Hmm. 
That's an interesting question. But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. She's doing it again now. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Typical teenager. In a sense, yeah. Huh? What? What? I mean, that's his human side of it. He was being a teenager. In a sense, I suppose. Um, They didn't worry about him traveling back. In other words, he didn't ride with them going back. They assumed he was with the other kids, whatever the way I'm reading. They were used to him probably hanging around, doing stuff in the caravan. And when they were looking for him and they couldn't find him, probably at the first day stop, they got worried, so they go back. That makes perfect sense, and that's not something that would necessarily be unexpected. It's what they find him doing when they get back to Jerusalem that they find interesting. I mean, he's not out carousing and causing trouble with some gang there. He's in the temple after looking for him. Notice what it says. Uh, I thought this was fascinating. After three days, they found him in the temple. What were y'all doing? They should never have left him. Well, it was an accident. They didn't. They were used to him hanging around doing other things, obviously. But at the same time, why did they not? They spent the, they spent three days looking for him in Jerusalem. That must have been heart wrenching. Why did they go to the temple first? Why is it that everything that you find is in the last place you look for it? Because when you find it, you stop looking. You stop looking. But why is it that it's usually in the last place you would have looked? Always, I used to say, always go to the last place you were going to look. That's where you'll find it. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily work, does it? So where would they have looked? At friends' houses? They probably would have gone to friends' houses, to places where they normally stayed, marketplaces. But I, I would think that maybe... To me, I'm a little surprised by that. Would, I, I, if they probably, knew who he was, I, yeah. why wouldn't they have mother, Look, Mother, you saw this kid born. You had this angel come and chat with you and say this is going to, you know, he's going to it's be the happen, yeah. Messiah, the Savior of the world. You had these, these, these shepherds come up and tell you about this. If you accept the stuff over in Matthew, you had these three gays come giving you gold, frankincense, <laughs> and myrrh. You had all this stuff occur. Don't you think that you might expect something to be happening? And now that he's 12 years old, especially in the Jew. Now, this reads almost like he's a lot younger than 12. If you understand that your Jewish adulthood, now maybe not your Jewish independence, but your Jewish adulthood for boys begins at 12. It doesn't sound like something that would come from a Jewish perspective. It sounds more like a Gentile attitude towards a 12-year-old. Child, the utilization of the reference in my translation here, she says in verse 48, Child, why have you treated us like this? And if he was 12, they should have taken care of all that garbage and stuff. And the word in Greek is technon, which is literally the word for child, little one. 
And you wouldn't call a 12-year-old that if you were a Jew. But this reflects something we'll see elsewhere in Luke. The Greekification or the Gentile shading of Jewish things. For instance, uh, when they're trying to put this paralytic man down so Jesus can heal him, in Matthew it, it says they removed the roof, the thatch roof, to put him in the house, the lower him down. In Luke it says they removed the tiles. <laughs> Very much what you would expect in a Greek cultural. Huh? Dug. Yeah, they did. They dug through the thatch roof. So... It's, it reflects different cultural expectations. And I think we have a little bit of that here. Some of the cultural expectations present of Gentiles reacting to a 12-year-old would be different from the cultural expectations of a Jew towards a 12-year-old boy. And I think we have a little bit of that here. The attitude is more reflective of a Gentile culture than a Jewish one. So keep that in mind. And we see this kind of thing repeatedly in Luke. Would, yes. would that have been when they said that he, he, they didn't believe him or didn't know what he was talking about and said, you, you should have known I would have been in the church. <laughs> they were still mad at him and apparently said, never mind, we're going home because that's why he said he was obedient mm-hmm. and went with them. He didn't argue anymore. Now that, 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 that little bit would actually reflect some Jewish conception that no matter what your age, you are obedient to your parent. You have respect towards your parent. And at that point in time, since he's still living with them, and this would be true in Jewish culture, you would obey that or your your mother would get very mad at me. Yes? I was just going to bring a feminist or a womanist perspective to this. Um, This is his Jewish mother. I'm literally... And you are never a grown-up to your mother. That's so, true. Um, That's true, That's but, true for your Gentile mother, too, by the way. I, you know, I have to, my son is 26, and he's still living at home. And there are times when I go to him and say, Boy, you know, <laughs> you're going to do this now. But um, I, I think that it's not... Good point. Um, I think it's not you know, unexpected that his mother, who is very human, she may have had all these mystical, divine things happen to her, she's still a human being. Good point. And so she's going to react the way she's been brought up in her culture to react as a Mom! Careful with the earlobe! That's right. It it doesn't seem out of character to me. I mean, I Mm. can almost hear Mary saying this. When you know, when, you, when, you know, as a person reading years later, we appreciate this story because we didn't have anything about his childhood, his growing up years, so we appreciate not this. Here. Not here, not here, yeah, yeah, we don't have anything. Well, so. and another thing about parents in this age that they're at, you know, almost becoming parents, I mean, an adult, and they are probably well aware of scribes, Pharisees, and you got some good people and you got some bad people. They're probably making a decision. Maybe he's not old enough to face these guys yet. That would be their fear, the parents' fear, which also would would shed little light on what it says here when it says that uh, and, and all who heard him 
were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's prior to the age of apprenticeship. Prior to the age, just prior, well, he's actually old enough now to start his rabbinic studies. And yet he has all the... the, the ability, the knowledge to uh, to discuss, to ask questions and answer questions within the circle of scholars, which surprises them. Which surprises them. Yes? But possibly also, in terms of your question about are they surprised by this, Scripture doesn't tell us whether they're surprised or not, but they've had experience of this child being sought after by people in power to be killed. Well, they should have kept a better watch on it. Well, <laughs> it's you know it's tough for us from our perspective to say it. You should have. Yeah, they should, should have. You know, should have, would have, could have. But. It might, it, it, it might, what's recorded here, I think, is just a small part of the story. No, yeah. if, you think, yeah. if you think to the context of what they've been through with, with him already, it, knowing that he's now standing in the midst of all of these men who have all of this power, religiously and, 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 and civilly as well, yeah. they're not going to want them to know that he's anything other than a precocious young man. They don't want him to know he's the son of God. Well, it's Luke the one that's getting his information from there. Yes, according to many in yeah, traditional understandings, yeah. and yes. And it certainly reflects the, a Marian point of view, okay? Mm-hmm. That definitely is a fact, no matter what yeah. the resource. Notice where he says in 49, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. He doesn't understand what? That I must be in my father's house and what he meant by that? That his father is not Joseph, but God? What what might he mean by that? We don't know. We thought they knew. Well, <laughs> you know, we thought they knew he was divine. The we would think, yeah. But there, there seems to be a point here where they don't understand him. It seems to be, in this particular story, that there's a degree to which they do not understand him. Even though they've experienced all this miraculous stuff earlier, they seem to lack a degree of understanding. But do you think he went home and he just didn't do anything for the next 15 years? No, not at all. I don't think that. You've read those stories. You've read some of the Proto-Galium stories. Well, some of that stuff is weird. <laughs> some of those sto- one of those stories, Jesus is a child. It's kind of like Damien from the Omen. He would make little clay pigeons out of mud on the Sabbath day, and then clap his hands, and they would come to life and fly away. <laughs> and then he would get in trouble for it. Some boy said, "I want to tell your mommy and daddy that you did work on the Sabbath day." So Jesus strikes him dead. And then, and then when their parents are mourning over the death of their son, Jesus and, and, and all, and, the, and he's getting blamed for it, Jesus raises the boy from the dead, 
so that the boy can say, no, I deserve to get zapped because I was not going to be nice to him. It's really far-fetched type of stuff. It's no it's, wonder they didn't put that in It's obvious why, exactly, it's obvious why it's not in Scripture. It's clearly pious stories told long after the fact by people who've asked a simple question. How would Mary discipline the Son of God? You couldn't do it. You know, if every time you tried to spank him, your hand disappeared, I mean, that'd be, that'd be problematic. I mean, <laughs> so. Now you've got me wondering about this, and I'm... And I'm and I'm thinking back to some of my Jewish studies. Would the, would the Jews at this time have had a theological understanding of the temple as the kind of intimate place of relationship that Jesus talks about in my father's house? I mean, would it, would it not be more of the otherworldliness of the majestic divine God except that they were engaging in commerce in the temple I would say normally yeah the holy of holies the place where the sacrifices are done that attitude is probably there what they're talking about here is not so much the cultic section of the temple but the courts around it where they would sit and discuss things theological points that's my understanding so they weren't sitting in the Holy of Holies on the other side of the curtain where the sacrifices are going on having a nice chat. He's up on the Temple Mount in the courtyard around the temple structure where they would sit and converse on theological issues. At least that's but, my understanding. Yeah, I guess my question is, did the Jews have a, of a theological understanding of God as Father at this point? Yes, you see that in the Psalms, you see it in in certain Proverbs, you see it in the prophets to an extent, although it's more distant nominally there, it's still there. The problem is you really had to be specially positioned to to make that reference. For a 12-year-old kid to use that reference for, for the deity is rather pushing it, yeah. which is part of maybe the reason why they didn't understand it. Not that they didn't remember what had happened 12 years before, but that they were simply stunned that he would be making this, he would be expressing this understanding. I kind of have a suspicion. They didn't tell him what happened. They didn't tell him about his birth. They didn't share with him about the shepherd. They didn't, Mary didn't tell him what Gabriel said. That's my opinion. Joseph have, didn't tell him about the dreams. Apparently not. That, that would be my opinion based upon what I've read. And hence, they're surprised that this is now happening. Where is this coming from? Why would he therefore think this? There's a question of, in Christology, in the study of the nature of Jesus, the degree to which there was a development in him of his self-understanding. To what degree to, could a adolescent human mind comprehend that I am the Word of God incarnate in human flesh kind of idea? I mean... That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, that's a tough one for adults. 
I mean, to expect a 12-year-old boy to get it or his brain to be capable of comprehending it is arguable. Um, so you can – you know, we'll talk about issues of Christology later. But that's, a, that's an interesting question. But at the same time, the younger the mind, the more impressionable. True. Because I believed a whole lot more when I was 12 than I do now. I'm Usually growing scared. up it be, in, involves a degree of losing trust and faith. Exactly. And becoming less open to new ideas. Yes? Well, I was just going to say, um, at his age, he wouldn't have had to understand the full gravity of, of who he was and what he was to have a curiosity and interest in learning about <laughs> the temple and, and God and all things related. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the next, the next sentence, the last sentence. Yeah, let's read the last yeah, sentence. Because that says it all, I think, from Luke. And Jesus increased mm -hmm. in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Yeah. Now, increased I increase if you're already there. In wisdom. Who? Luke? Yeah. He talked about I mean, he, he wasn't talking. He, was in his he wasn't head. there. Yeah, he wasn't. He didn't know what was in his head. His own mother didn't know what was in his own head. Well, isn't that the kind of the theme here? I'm 12 years old in the Jewish tradition. That's when, mm -hmm. when it starts. You give our mitzvah and you yeah. start going to religious school. He was just a little bit accelerated in his. Yeah. Quite a bit a year. <laughs> At least, probably a heck of a lot more. Um, how did it, how did he know this? We're well, also uh, looking at Mary is has hindsight now. Yes, you're looking at Mary having hindsight, telling Luke this, mm -hmm. and he writing it down. You have sources for that statement. Would be Mary's talking about Jesus's growing up past twelve, not detailing it. But still, she could have talked about it. Well, here's a question. Also, also you have the simple reality that that is what would have happened it, for Jesus to be who Jesus is the next time we see yeah, him in Luke. It's a, it's a rhetorical thing. It's a rhetorical it's like, literary... After it's a rhetorical <laughs> literary device, kind of like they lived happily ever after, but as a transition to what's getting next. ready to happen yeah. next. For Jesus to be who he is when we next see him in the story, has this to has to happen. This, this has to happen. It's also a statement of faith. And I think it's fascinating that, they, that he uses the word Jesus increased, grew. Pro ek poten. He expanded. He grew. In wisdom and in years, he learned, which means that he doesn't come popping out of his mother with all, with the capacity to process, articulate, and understand all knowledge. Doesn't mean that he's not omnipotent, or excuse me, not omniscient. It means that his brain isn't capable at that point through the development. Of synthesizing it. Oh, you mean he's more human? Is that what you're trying to say? Not more human. He, he is human. Period. Uh -huh. He is human. Not just but as, as, as is true, as he grows older, he becomes more capable of accessing that information. 
So we think. Good. So well, it makes sense to us because back here in verse 47, he already had that great wisdom and understanding that he was astounding people who were well on in years and he, well for He was, he, he had, and yet he still increased and grew. Well, it could also be that That's he, since, na- since that happened, maybe the communication dialogue started. So to Mary, she's now just getting information that she thinks he's increasing. He may have already had all that, it just was never communicated. So for to her, it may, it just doesn't make sense to me, I guess, that he would, and in favor of God, that's another part of that. I I'm, I'm, would be curious to see what exactly that means. And in, in divine and human favor, favor God. with God. How could God, how could the, be increased with God in terms of... Maybe God's Maybe giving him more information. information. He's filling yeah. him with more information. Okay, that's why I'm saying you'll find this very fascinating. The Greek word here for favor is karitai, grace. Grace. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and and in grace with God. And human. What does that mean? It means that he, he, he grew in God's grace. He, he, he grew into that which God had for him to be as the incarnate son of God. He, he grew in grace. It, it's, it's very similar when we talk about, about perfection, to being made perfect in love in this life, in being able to know the perfect presence of God in our lives today. doesn't mean we still don't grow and don't develop further in God's sanctification. It simply means that we can know the perfect love of God here and now, where we are here and now. And we can still grow in sanctification, in knowledge, and in love. You can be really smart and still learn things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you better. In fact, if you really are smart, you will learn things. You never stop learning. And the same thing could be said for humans. The same thing could be said here with regards to Jesus in both grace and in knowledge. While he had full access to God's wisdom and full access to God's grace, his, his capacity as a human being to process the information and, and be cognizant and aware of the nature of God's presence with him probably grew over time as he matured. He had to mature into the full and even at the even at the very end when he comes to the point of his death on the cross you're still talking about a finite number of neurons in his brain it cannot hold the infinity of omniscience it can access that which it needs hence when the scripture says that Jesus says that I don't know only the father knows when, when he says that, he's not denying omniscience. He's, what he's saying is, is that, frankly, I don't That's need to know. I don't need to know. If I need to know, I can find out. I have access to that. And when we get to that point, we'll talk about that. That's an interesting philosophical, Christological discussion on the nature of omniscience relative to when Jesus says, the Son of Man doesn't know, only the Father in heaven. Wow, 
That means Jesus says that he's not omniscient. Well, it means that he doesn't have active understanding or knowledge of that, whatever that is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he can't access it if he needs to. Just as he's omnipotent, means he can do any and everything. If he's God, he certainly has that capacity, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't feel the need to. Well, to do it would make it impossible for other things to happen. To exercise his omnipotence at every single moment, just like to exercise his omnipresence at every single moment, would be counterproductive to what he's being called to do and be. So he's making an act of choice, just like the act of choice of receiving yeah. grace. Yes, yes. It's how, again, how human of it. Yes. That looks like the whole example. Of yes. We, we need to remember, we have to be very careful. The, the, the two basic heresies of the church throughout its history has been on one side to deny his divinity and on the other side to deny his humanity. And the orthodox brilliance was to bring them both together all right, and say that he is fully human and fully divine. The Gnostics said he ain't human, he's a hologram. The Arians said he's not divine, he's a human being who's been adopted by God. And both sides were saying the truth, he was human, he was divine. And the compromise of the councils was to say, he's both and. And, and that statement of the church, that he's both and, reflects what we find in scripture, especially in the letters of Paul. And, and is an affirmation of his humanity and divinity. And we as Christians today still slip into one heresy or the other and deny his humanity in favor of his divinity or deny his divinity in favor of his humanity. And you can't, anytime you do that, you get yourself into trouble theologically. You have to hold two intentions. Hence, you have the question, how can he be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and be a human being? Well, I'm, I think that's probably why he had to go through the growing process in every aspect. That's part of being that's human. Part, part of him. That's part of being human. But he had the capability and the capacity to have everything that's spiritual. Okay, here's another question. He was, he was without sin, as you said. But was he capable of sin? Absolutely, he was human. Thank you. <laughs> to deny the to deny the capacity to 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 deny him the capacity to sin would be to deny him humanity. But so what they say, what the traditional response to this has been historically has been: by virtue of his humanity, he could have sinned; by virtue of his divinity, he did not sin. Which is where the doctrine actually functions. By virtue of his humanity, he could have. By virtue of his divinity, he did not. But at the same time, when he was on the cross and he questioned God, was that not sin? Did he question God? Or did he, did he, was he quoting the Psalms, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not as so much a question, but as a proclamation. We'll come to that when we, read. when we get when we get to the crucifixion sometime around 2011. We'll <laughs> Are you think it's be that I have no idea how long it's going to take us. Good luck. I want to do one more thing before we close for the night, and that's take a look at the genealogies. So, I want you to turn first to Matthew chapter one. 
You notice we kind of just left Luke because there is no answer. There's simply discussion. And that's good. I love that. We may come back to this. In fact, I hope we do at some point. But and are those stories unique to two visits to the temple? The, the, it, the post-birth, pre-baptism story is unique to Luke. It exists nowhere else in the biblical record. There's plenty of legendary material from the infancy gospel of Thomas and the Protoevangelium of James, uh, biblical, non excuse me, extra biblical works from the second and third century that tell us stories about Jesus as a child. It almost sounds like Damien from the Omen series. He makes these little clay birds and, he, and they come alive and they fly away. And then a little child, because he did it on the Sabbath day, says, I'm going to tell your mommy and daddy about it. And so Jesus strikes him dead by looking at him, you know. And then he gets in trouble for doing that. And so Jesus raises him from the dead so that he can say, oh, I deserve to die. I mean, it's, it's insane stuff. It purport, it's legendary material purporting to talk about the childhood of Jesus but it's clearly non-biblical. It's clearly way post-biblical. Some of it was written in Latin. Some of it was written in, in, in Coptic. Some of it was written in Greek. But it's mostly, almost entirely post-biblical in character. Um, Matthew chapter 1. An account, and notice how it starts. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, of the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, he did the genealogy yeah, that's in I'm one verse. He did it in one verse. The son of David, the son of Abraham. <laughs> now, I'm not going to read through the whole genealogy. I'm just going to touch on a couple of interesting points. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Het. Uh, Hezron and Hezron the father of Aram and Aram the father of Amminadab and, and, and so on and so on and so on. You ever, 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 ever have any insomnia? Read either the Begets from Genesis or the Wanderings in the Wilderness in Exodus or the genealogies in Matthew and Luke and they'll put you to sleep, trust me. Where? Verse 5. And, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Yes, that's the biblical Boaz. And Jesse, the father of King David. And then it keeps on going from David all the way. Notice the first section deals with Abraham to David. The second section deals from David to the deportation to Babylon. That's from the second half of verse 6 all the way down to the end of verse 11. That's the deportation into Babylon. So the first section deals with the pre-dynastic, pre-kingly period of his ancestry from Abraham all the way up to David. The second section from David to the deportation deals with the kingly ancestry. These are all kings of Judah the southern kingdom that are listed here. After that, after the deportation to Babylon, and then we have this list. You know, I, some of the, if you're ever wanting to have a name for a child, a boy, I mean, we've got some really good ones in here like Zadok. Often expected, I once heard that pronounced Zardoz <laughs> from the movie. Um, but, uh, but it keeps on going all the way down. Now look, verse 16. 
and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So this does it in chronological order from Abraham to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus, just the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. That, uh, notice what it says in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Special about 14. 7 plus 7 is perfection. Yeah, well, seven, seven, 7 twice. Perfection twice. Perfection. That's a numerological observation. Or perfection six times if you take it all together. That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> nice I don't want to hear that. <laughs> Not six <laughs> times. Perfection right. six times if you take it all together. What? She, mm -hmm. she makes that? Screwed, she screwed that up for you. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> If you really want to get into that. Numerology. There's, some, there's something. Notice the women who are listed. And women usually aren't listed in genealogies. There's a couple of them there. Who are they? Ruth, Ruth. Ruth and Mary. Yeah, Ruth and Mary. Okay, let's go from the beginning. And a bunch of them We have Tamar. We have Ruth. Rahab. Verse 5. And Simon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Ruth, Tamar, Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. What do those women have in common? Not of Jewish estimable character. Thank you. They're not of estimable character. Well, 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 not quite. <laughs> not quite. Um, they are, firstly, all not Hebrew. Rahab was the Jericho. Yeah. Ruth was a Moabite. That's right. Um, Tamar. Yes, she was a Philistine. And Bathsheba was a Hittite. Yeah, that's terrible. That's interesting. And they're all in Jesus' ancestry. And then you get Mary, the only one who is listed, named. And she's Jewish, but she has something about her that's a taint. And this is Matthew. Like I'm married when she was writing to the Jews, right? Sorry, what? That's pretty big. And this is Matthew, who was Pete writing to the Jews, who were so caught up on their... You're right, and being able to trace your descendancy from David, she goes—he goes one better, all the way back to Abraham. But it, but it, but it—it's it, important to get that Davidic ancestry. If he is going to be a son of David, if he's going to be the new king of Israel, the Messiah, he has to be descended from David, and this proves it for any Jew. But to include the Gentiles of who they would assume Gentiles in there. To mention them. Now, they're going to be there no matter what, because in the history they are. But to mention them. It, it, it's an indicator that God doesn't always do the things we expect. Think about it. You know, primogenitor says that it should be the firstborn who inherits things. But in, but in the patriarchal period, it's never the firstborn who inherits. 
It's always the second born or third or even more so. Ephraim and Manasseh. The younger ascends and the elder serves. Isn't that interesting? Happens repeatedly. And this we have women and it's not particularly good women. <laughs> Including but doesn't that show Mary. that God wants him truly of human, not one specific it, religion? Well, he wants him to be everybody. That will work in Luke. Okay, Here, it, he may have a different argument. He may be pointing out that just as all of these other very special women who are play important roles in the ancestry of the Hebrew people, and they all do, Bathsheba especially is a good example of one. I mean, they play very important roles in the history of the Hebrew people. They're not exactly the best people to, to be looking towards. If they can play that role, then the rumors that you've been hearing about Mary you should disregard too. And then what's coming next should help you to completely disregard those rumors. She, she didn't uh, conceive Jesus through an illicit relationship with Joseph prior to their marriage, and it wasn't some Roman centurion who came in and did it. it, as the Jews later claimed, by the way. So you think he highlighted those women because of the uh, rumors going around? Of to address Mary. the issue of Mary and whether or not, well, should, oh, we, right. should we be recognizing the mother of the Messiah and she, uh, the rumors are that she had sex before she got married? <gasps> well, look at these other women. God used them, but even I got one better for you. Read what comes next, and you've got the, the annunciation unto Joseph and the fact that she's not pregnant from an illicit affair, but from the Holy Spirit, which then settles it for all involved. And is a direct slap against what shows up in the Mishnah very quickly in the late first century, and certainly by the by the beginning of the second century when we have copies of it, which said that Jesus was the child of Mary by a Roman centurion. They were already saying that about him, trying to suppress the Christian movement. But Joseph was the descendant of David. Right. Why do we trace a genealogy to Joseph when Joseph, none of Joseph gets to Jesus? Exactly. Well, even if you adopt. I thought I had always heard that Mary also came through the line of David. That's why she I does. Remember. And we'll talk about that in a minute in Luke. But she but does. Matthew is oh, in Luke that. naturally. <laughs> yeah, it does in Luke. It does now. Go, why not? Matthew well, isn't interested in that. Matthew. Matthew is Mary is a minor character in in, in Matthew. She's she carries Jesus. She's the incubator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's the incubator. It's a very Jewish attitude. Um. The genealogy goes to Joseph because of the simple fact of Jewish basic, Jewish expectation that the father, of the, the legal father, was Joseph. The visible legal father of Jesus was Joseph. It's kind of like the stepdad thing. Adopted. Yeah. Um, as we'll see in Luke, they address it by the whole phrase of, as was supposed. But we'll come to that in just a second. Anything else here that looks interesting to you? I want to highlight one thing before we turn to Luke. Look who the father of Joseph is. 
It's Jacob. Mm -hmm. Jacob, the father of Joseph. That's who's named as Joseph's dad. This should, when we read Luke, cause you trouble. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to Luke. Oh. Put the thumb, Jacob's going to be Mary's dad. <laughs> no. Put a thumb into Matthew. Or keep your hand there because you're probably going to want to turn back to it. Now we're going to turn to the genealogy in Luke. And you're going to notice something. Genealogy in Luke doesn't come anywhere close to the beginning. It comes after the baptism. Which is really weird. It's in chapter 3 beginning at verse 23. Uh, first of all, that's weird. Why is it placed after the baptism? Fascinating. Let's read it. After you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. It immediately says, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli. Ooh. There's no way that you can equate Jacob to Heli. It just doesn't work. Now there's one, the son of Methot, okay, well that's close. The son of Levi, huh? The son of Malchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Naam, and so on, and so on, and so on. Most of these names... These are all different names. ...are all different. <laughs> it's a different genealogical tree, with a few exceptions. Like when you get all the way down to... Paris, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac. Now these, I mean, once you get down to the, you know, da you've got David in yeah. there, you've got Boaz, but you've got, you got the sequence here. Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Abinadab, son of Adam, Ad Ad Admin, son of Arnai, son of Hezron, son of Paris, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of A Abraham, son of Tira, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Rehu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, <laughs> son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, wow, <laughs> son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Limech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of uh, Mahalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. One of the big differences between Matthew and Luke's, just ignoring the names for a second, is what? How far back it goes. It goes back to whom? It goes backwards. It goes to God, but it goes to Adam. It goes backwards. And it going back to Adam, what does it do? It connects Jesus to all people. Yeah. To Curious. all people. In other words, writing to Gentiles, Luke is pointing out, you too are related to Jesus. Since we're all descended from Adam. You too can trace your lineage back and get yourself connected up with Jesus. He is your relative. He's not some distant Jew. You are related to him at some point through this genealogical tree in some way. That's a universal statement that would be important for Gentiles to hear. Especially Gentiles who come from a community who don't really like Jews very much. <laughs> now, the importance of linking Jesus up with David is minimalized. He is linked up with David. But it's not, it's not as stylized and it's not, it's not as obvious. 
Now it's clearly stated. Well, it's not as important to the Gentiles. Exactly. In fact, it's, it's almost of no importance to Gentiles. It's there, but it's of almost no importance to Gentiles. Now let's deal with the issue of the father of Joseph as listed here. Can I read a note that's written here? Yes, please. It says, note, in the Jewish Talmud, Jesus' mother is referred to as Mary, the daughter of Heli. Since Heli had only daughters, his genealogy is continued through his son-in-law, Joseph. Thank you. You, you were anticipating precisely what I was getting ready to say. They, well, so, so is that saying that really that was Mary's father? Hmm. Okay, there are many theories about this, but let's state the obvious going out the gate, and then we'll answer the questions. Let's state the obvious. This is not the same genealogy. <laughs> All right, it's not. That's stating the obvious. Yes, it's not the same genealogy. There are interconnections. And at one point, they're, they're very close, like it should be, because you're going through the patriarchal period. But for the most part, it's a very different <coughs> genealogy, which leads you to think one of two things. Either it's a mistake, or Matthew's was a mistake, and one of the other is correct. The general argument made early in the church, and by that I mean in the Nicene period, i.e. the 300s, and before, but not much before, and then it was popular all the way up until the Reformation, is that this is Mary's genealogy which would then fit with everything else we've experienced from Luke, which it comes from Mary's perspective. Does Mark cover genealogy? Mark ignores this. There's no genealogy in Mark. He's short. But didn't they ignore the genealogy of women? They usually ignore the genealogies of women. They usually do. Which raises a question, who is this Joseph? That's mentioned. Is it the husband of Mary? Or is it something else? Now, the theories are as follows. It may be that Heli, Mary's granddad, adopted Joseph when Joseph's dad died. Adopted as an adult. Not likely. It may be that when Joseph died... Mary's dad, Joaquin, who's named elsewhere, not in scripture, is dead. And therefore, another adult, in the ma a male adult in the family, takes authority. There is a male adult relative of Mary in the records. Non-biblical, we're talking outside the Bible. That's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, who later on in the story has the, has the right to ask for the body of Jesus. Only a relative could ask for the body of someone who had been executed by the Romans. He asks for the body of Jesus and buries him in his own tomb. Why would he do that? He was a secret disciple, member of the Sanhedrin, wealthy merchant. But why would he do this unless he was possibly a relative? And the tradition goes early in the church that Joseph of Arimathea was Mary's uncle, the brother of Mary's dad, the son of Heli. 
and hence the phrasing, as was thought of Joseph, reflects not Joseph the husband of Mary, but Joseph of Arimathea. Where it says, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought. Now, the word as was thought, in Greek, in every place that it is used, supposed, as it is used in Luke, everywhere it is used, it assumes the opposite. In other words, as was thought, but is wrong. As is mistakenly supposed. As is mistakenly supposed. So, you could translate it, he was the son, as was mistakenly supposed, of Joseph, son of Heli. Notice Mary's not listed here. Son of Mathot. But this Joseph isn't Joseph the carpenter. It's Joseph of Arimathea, the tin merchant, the uncle of Mary. Why would it be supposed that Jesus was his son? Because it's by adoption. When Joseph, when Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, older than he as he is, dies right after the events that are that are told at the end of chapter two. You know, they go to they go to Jerusalem, they lose Jesus, they find him, they go home. Poor guy, he has nothing to say in the gospel. He dies. When Jesus is 12 or about? Sometime right after the events. When that occurred, Mary, in their culture, you can't, you cannot, women are not legal entities. They can't buy and sell without the authority of a man in the Jewish law. So that Joseph stepped in. So her grandfather, her family essentially takes over. And it's her grandfather's family, it's that line, Heli, his living son, Joseph of Arimathea, essentially adopts her and then becomes her legal agent. Well, I have a question then. Why would Jesus have on the cross then specifically told, was it John, to take care of Mary if there was already something set up? With the following caveat, I'll answer the question. Remember, that's from John's Gospel. <laughs> We're dealing with well, synoptics. Well, We're dealing with synoptics. Well, and, <laughs> let, me, let me address the question. That's not fair. <laughs> no, it's not fair, but I love it. That's why. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, let me address the question. First of all, while Joseph of Arimathea was alive, he was not a public public disciple of Jesus and wasn't present at the death but John was and therefore he wanted to hand Mary off to his dearest closest non-deserted friend who well, was in public but he couldn't have claimed Jesus' body either well he does that after Jesus is dead things have changed now and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, you're talking about Joseph of Arimathea? No. You're talking about John. John, John, John couldn't have claimed the body, but, he, but Joseph of Arimathea could. could. Or Mary could, but Mary is, Mary is a woman and would have no authority to go before the Roman exactly. magistrate and ask for the body. So have to be a man. But John, who isn't relative, couldn't do it, but Arimathea could. 
So this is kind of consistent with an effort to promote marriage. It would explain why this genealogy is here, why it's different from the Matthian one, and you got to keep in mind, genealogies were very important to Jews, and they kept records of them, and those records were kept, and families would keep those records just kind of like we do, but it was even more important to them, and therefore the idea that there would be a lineage or a genealogy for Joseph in existence that, jo that Matthew, the author of Matthew, could access is not really far-fetched. We know from a contemporary authors, Josephus, for instance, he says his genealogy is on record and he then cites it. He's gone and gotten the record and he cites it. Other, period, other people from this period, even earlier than Josephus, cite their genealogies that they say are on record in the temple. So they, they kept these kinds of records, the genealogies of the people. And then the families would keep their own records. So it's not far-fetched that Joseph's genealogy might have been kept within that family, i.e. James, the brother of the Lord's family, who was the bishop of Jerusalem until he was executed, murdered by the Jewish authorities in the 60s. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, but in Luke which is focuses more on Mary, what's this doing here? And Mary's not even listed. She's not even named. She at least gets named in, in the other one. But here she's not even named. And the father of the Joseph listed here is not the same name as over in the other. So how do you handle all of these discrepancies? The one that seems to work, and it worked from early in the, in the interpretation period, in the transmission of the text period, and is accepted all the way down to the beginning of the Reformation when they rejected it, is that this in fact reflects Mary's genealogy through her, essentially through her, her uncle, Joseph, who is the son of Heli and so forth. And other records tell us that Joseph of Arimathea's father was Eli. So it all matches. It all works. We have one record that says about Mary's ancestry that, that connects her up with Eli. And that's not a Christian record, by the way. That's a Jewish record. So you've got interesting interconnections here that would support the argument that this is Mary's genealogy, not Joseph's. Or it is a Joseph's genealogy. The Joseph who's listed here. But that's not the carpenter husband of Mary, Joseph. But isn't that... It's a tough one. The this miracle of the Bible is that in the society that Jesus was born in, we would never have the record of Mary because she was, an, she was yeah. a carrier. And because of the events that happened, we have her gene genealogy. And then the tradition of of Judaism, we have Joseph's, so we can now have, we both have both records through. We have both records, if you accept the theory. Now, what the what happened in the Reformation and then in the in the academic eras in the last couple of centuries is they have essentially said that both genealogies are artificial creations of the authors. Well, Matthew's is an artificial creation of the authors. Luke's seems to be somewhat adopted, but is probably an artificial creation also of 
the author of an immediate source. What did they do? She go. She can go back to the Jewish uh, chronicles. Yeah, mostly. No, and then they, they artificially they created. Like that. That's the that's the that's the attitude of the skeptical scholarship, who 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 I understand why they're saying this because there are problems, and it is it's a little bit of a stretch. You have to assume things that aren't here, but things that quite frankly are not really hard to believe. If Joseph did die, and he apparently died before <laughs> before Jesus came of age, i.e., before Jesus turned thirty. Um, he, Joseph was dead throughout the rest of the story. He, he disappears at the end of chapter 2 uh, of Luke. So assuming Joseph died sometime pretty quickly thereafter that, and the traditions say he did, then somebody would have to assume authority for Mary. And the way the Jews did that was they handed the, the, the bereaved woman off to a brother of the deceased. Or if there weren't any, off to old eldest children if they were old enough. If there weren't any of them, then off to the woman's side of the family, back to her father, or to her father's brother, or grandfather. And so, assuming her dad's dead, which is a possibility, that would then argue why she would go to her dad's brother, Joseph. So it's not a stretch, given the Hebrew culture, to see how that would happen. Then you have this little phrase in here, as was supposed. We always connect that, the tradition, the, the, the modern reader connects that immediately <laughs> to Joseph the carpenter, the husband of Mary. But if you go back into the context of the period, it could mean anything. Misconnection, father of. So it, it, it is a bit of a stretch, and which is why the skeptical scholars reject it, but, but at the same time, it's not. And I actually prefer it. It means that both genealogies have a meaning. They both have, they have multiple meanings. We, are, we already saw some of them from Matthew, Matthew's genealogy. There are several meanings there, uh, things that it communicates about Jesus, about his nature, about his ancestry, about his position in the culture, which is the most important thing. And then what you have in the, Mar the Marian one in Luke is that he's connected to Adam, hence to everybody. There's no other reason to go back to Adam other than to then connecting to God and to everybody. Um, Could you clear something up for me? I might be confusing Dan Brown with reality. <laughs> <laughs> you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the first. Um, <laughs> I saw Tom Hanks or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mary, Mary left the region, though, after Christ's death. Wasn't it Joseph who Joseph she went with? According to old church tradition that comes to us from, well, through Eusebius, the church historian tells us about it. But he got it from Irenaeus, who was the bishop of Lyon in France. According to early church traditions, Mary had to flee Israel probably within just a few years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And she left with her uncle Joseph. This Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea who's talked about later in the Gospels. Okay. He is a biblical character. We will come into him. We'll, we'll meet him later on in Luke. <laughs> we'll meet him in Luke. Oh, okay. 
Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, we're, we're finished for the evening unless anybody has any questions. I'm just amazed at the way in which, and, and I've read this before and I've read Luke before, I'm still amazed at how much Luke depends upon Mary's point of view. That's just amazing to me. It, and it's consistent. Joseph, Joseph says nothing. He's agreed what you expect. Joseph says nothing. I feel sorry for Joseph. Well, he didn't have really anything to do with Jesus. Other than I mean, raise him for about 12 years. Yeah, exactly. Other than take Mary in and not let Keep her Keep Mary being stoned yeah. to death. <laughs> but other than that, no. Okay. Next week, we pick up with the triple tradition. We'll start with Mark. And we'll read Mark's baptism story. And then we'll read Matthew's and we'll read Luke's. And that's how we'll, we'll start the rest of the process. And work our way through. So we've ended the pre-marking materials which are unique each to You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal. Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.